Lord, set our hearts apart now to hear your word. And may we uh, have tender hearts to receive it well. For we don't want to go into our week thinking that we have the answers. Instead, we want to know that you do and that we rely upon you so we're okay for that. And we don't have to have it all figured out because you do. And because of that, Lord, we, we can not only rejoice, but we can also relax knowing that uh, our victories are really rooted in you. Um, may you be the divine teacher, I pray, in this session. And may your Holy Spirit work in our lives in such a way that we leave here as different people. And uh, thank you now for the time in your word, in Christ's name, amen. So we're in Joshua, we're in chapter 5, and, and the word courage is the central theme. It's the life that we all want, a courageous kind of life. We all want to be courageous people. We just don't want to be scared to death. There's just nothing worse than living a, a boring, monotonous life of solitary confinement. What God wants is a courageous, faith-filled, adventurous life. He wants that for us, and he knows we need to be courageous, not just to be courageous, to be courageous for the sake of being courageous, but to be courageous about the right things. So he set out a path that we would be courageous and that we would grow in this. And this, this path towards being courageous people would be a growing kind of experience for us as well. We pick up our story in Joshua 5. God's people have, are about to attack Jericho. This is next week's story. Really, Lord willing, we'll be at Jericho and it'll be a great, it'll be a great day. But God has promised the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, this piece of property that we call Israel today. And he's promised them that, and then through a multiple series of miracles, they've actually gotten to the property. And it has taken miracle upon miracle. They have just crossed the Jordan uh, River, and it's a mile wide, and it's deep. And we know the effect, if you've had the news on, we know the effect of water, don't we? We know it can carry a house down the river and rip up a road pretty good. And so when this flood stage river stops flowing, and all the people of the children of Israel get to cross the river. This is a nothing short of a phenomenal miracle. And God parts the water, the children of Israel cross, and then what happens is amazing. The people on the other side who are in the property that the children of Israel overtake, their hearts begin to melt because they realize we can't fight this. This is incredible. These people can stop water. These people were in the wilderness for 40 years and they never ran out of food. And even though they don't believe in the God of heaven, they know somebody's providing. Chapter 5, verse 1. Now all the Amorite kings west of the Jordan and the Canaanite kings along the coast heard how the Lord had dried up the Jordan before the Israelites until they had crossed over. Their hearts melted in fear and they had no longer had the courage to face the Israelites. Get that. Their hearts melted in fear. They no longer had the courage. The story's out. These people are paralyzed with fear. They're just drained. Their hearts are melting. The children of Israel have all the confidence in the world. They're ready to charge ahead because the momentum has shifted. And now Israel is in attack mode. And the momentum could carry them into the land. And they could, excuse the expression, but they could bum rush their way into the country and just take it over, just overrun them. And they could think, we're pretty cool stuff. And that's what happens in most competitions. I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but there'll be a sway. There'll be a moment in basketball, for instance, when a team will just catch 
um, the ball at the right time and steal it away, and then there'll be a fast break for you. You know what? There's points on the board. You can't stop it because the momentum went against you. It happens in football when they make a, 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 a long-distance run. The very next play, those guys will, will throw the bomb for the end zone because they have you back, what they call back on your heels. In boxing, it's called in the ropes. And so when you're backing up and you can't get in any way you can, then all of a sudden you're in the defensive mode. And that's when, that's when companies take over, and that's when they eat up other companies. And, and that's, that's how they make their aggressive moves, is, is that it kind of snowballs. That's the effect. My wife and I occasionally watch the show Jeopardy. Did anybody else watch Jeopardy? I, wa I watch it because it just reminds me how stupid I really am. <laughs> is it you? 36 clues on the board. Dave has the answer to two of them. Unfortunately, I didn't get points because I didn't put it in the form of a question. Yeah, I, I got that. I got it wrong because I didn't put it in the form of a question. If you've been watching it lately, there's a guy actually from D.C. who's on right now. He has a, I, don't, I'm, I can't remember, it's a Jewish dad and a Gentile mom. It's a Christian mom and a Jewish dad or something. Anyway, so he, and, and he is brilliant, but when he gets into the zone, you can't, your, your beeper doesn't even work anymore. You, you just hit the button, but it's, it, you don't ever get a chance. And if it ever does work, you're usually wrong. You're just going to go in the hole. This guy, once he's in the mode, he's in attack mode, you just can't beat the guy. So it is. Israel is in that attack mode. And the people are back on their heels, in the ropes, if you will. They're backing up as fast as they can. And there is this possibility that Israel could think that they are all that. That they could that they could be responsible for the victories. And so what God does is he stops them and he says, it's not about you and it's not about your momentum and how good you are and how strong the battles are. It isn't you. In fact, God stops it and says, we're going to make this moment holy. This will not only be victorious, this will be a holy moment for you. This is not about you, really. It's really about God. And the way God prepares them for a battle is this. He begins by making it extremely personal and then he gives to them context and he says, I want your involvement. Begin with the first. He makes it extremely personal. Chapter 5, verse 8. After the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. That's a verse no guy likes to read. Forty years as the whole generation wanders in the wilderness. They had given up many of the practices of the covenantal relationship, and circumcision was one of them. Circumcision was one of the covenantal agreements with God. And it was one of the practices, not only of the covenant, but held them different from the other people in all the world. And so before taking the property, what God is saying is, I, I don't want people to come in and some be circumcised and others not. And some say, well, I thought about it, but I didn't do it. And so he'd have this whole mix of things. He says, we're not going to grandfather people in. You're headed into the property before you win the first battle, before you take the first city. Everybody comes in the same way. And it's going to come through a very personal, private, painful experience. This is about as personal as a guy can get. It also incapacitates a guy as well. And quite frankly, humanly speaking, it's not a very wise move to make because if you take all your guys and you put them in for surgery, now you're not defensible because they're healing. And, and you're in an enemy country and you could be attacked. You don't have great equipment to begin with. And on top of that, your guys are hurting. They could be attacked during the recovery time. And these guys, if ever they were to pray, 
if it didn't happen at the river, and I'm sure it did, it certainly would happen at circumcision to say, oh God, we are helpless. We, we're in a very vulnerable position. And God does that not only to make it personally, uh, uh, extremely personal to them, but he does that to make sure they know when they win, it's not through their own might, it's not through their own power, it's not through their own strength, their own wisdom, their own cleverness, their own, their own uh, strategy at the war. It's none of that. It'll be because the Lord won the battle. So he makes it extremely personal. And then secondly, he makes it a momentous kind of context. He gives to them this context and helps them remember that the Lord has always been with them. On the evening of the 14th day, verse 10, the 14th day of the month, while camped at Gilgal on the plains of Jericho, the Israelites celebrated Passover. Now, on the evening of the 14th day of the month, they camp at Gilgal in the plains of Jericho. I thought Jericho was a city. It is a city. It's a walled city. But obviously the farm territory that supports that city can't be contained in those walls. And so there's this area that's the city of Jericho, but then there's this region of Jericho, kind of the county or a township of sorts. And this is where a lot of the farming, agriculture, the water supply, things like that would take place in this wider region. And that's where they are. And they're in the plains of Jericho and they stop again and they observe Passover. What in the world is Passover? Well, before they get too far into the promised land, the Lord wants to renew the covenant again. And he says, I want you to remember and he has them celebrate Passover, I want you to remember that there was a day when you were slaves. There was a day when you were overworked and undervalued. There was a day when you were humiliated. You had no hope. You had no future. You had no promise. And God says, and I was there for you. On your worst day of your life, I was there for you. When there was death everywhere else, I was there for you. And he wants you to remember your roots. And so what God does is he says to the believers, he says, I want you to he says it really to all, but only the believers did this. I want you to take a lamb and sacrifice it, and then I want you to paint the post. And all believers did that. And that night an angel flew over. That's why it's called the Passover. The angel of the Lord flew over, and as the angel flew over, if there was blood at the doorpost, he knew that they were believing and they feared God, and, and they were safe. But if the home did not have that blood sprinkled, there was death in that home. And the next morning, there was weeping and screaming because there was death everywhere of these homes that didn't believe. But for all those who believed the Lord and painted the post, did what he said, they were safe. Now, those houses that believed the Lord, it was a very sacred moment, but it was a celebrating moment too because they loved the people, but they loved their God. And, and what they remembered then was that God didn't leave us then. He won't leave us now. No matter what the challenge is, he will not leave us. The hardest challenges we have in life, God will be there. And I say that to you today, to the church. Your greatest challenge is God will give you the grace and the guts to get through what it is you're getting through. Tradition tells us that the lamb whose blood would, that would be shed, that lamb was to be roasted. And when they, they were done roasting that lamb, they were each to take a piece of that lamb and eat it. But they weren't to sit down at the table. They were to stand up, and they were to have a coat on, and they were to eat in haste. It's all part of a Jewish custom. It was part of what became a celebration of Passover. And they would eat standing with their coat on as a reminder that when God says it's time to go, because 
what was happening was he wanted the people to leave. And he said, I, I want you to believe that you're leaving and that you're being freed. The way you do that is to stand up. And the way you do that is to get your coat on like you're ready to go. And you eat in haste. You don't sit leisurely and talk. And so each year they would celebrate this Passover. Coat on, standing, no discussion, roasted lamb. And we remember where we came from. It will give us context to build not just momentum, but a godly kind of momentum. So God begins with it being extremely personal. Then he has this context piece that I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you, I'll never let go. Then thirdly, he says, I'm not going to do for you what you can do for yourself. God gives to them personal, meaningful involvement. Look at verse 11. The day after the Passover, that very day, they ate some of the produce of the land. Now where are they? they they've entered what we call the Holy Land, or Israel, we call today, they called it Canaan back then. They entered the land, they're outside, they can see Jericho from a distance, and they're picking off the crops they never even planted. You know what they say, don't you? The sweetest watermelon ever to be eaten is stolen. <laughs> and if you don't get shot in the process, it's okay. You know? There's... There's something about going on a, somebody's property and just picking a tomato off their plant. They go, hey, wait a minute. That's mine. Don't be doing that. They're picking off the crops that they never planted. They're getting the blessing, having never paid the pain or the price. And since they are getting food from the land, the Lord now begins to cut off the miracle. Okay, go back to the verse. The day after Passover, the very next day, he says, they ate some of the produce of the land. Unleavened bread, roasted grain. The manna stopped. What's the manna? The manna was the heavenly food that came from heaven out of the sky. The manna stopped the day after they ate this food from the land. There was no longer any manna for the Israelites, but that year they ate the produce of Canaan. Not the produce that they produced, but these people had produced. God had been providing for them miraculously, and now food's readily available. So don't ask God for a miracle when you don't need one, when you could work. You know, occasionally I'll hear someone says, I, I just want to be a millionaire. Well, start by getting a job. Just get a job. Yeah, but that's sort of confining. Yeah, I know it is. It's tough. Save a little bit of money. Stick it back. You're not used to that. Go to the financial course. It's here at the church. It'll help you. Just kind of manage the money. Don't expect a miracle from God when the provisions and the opportunity are there. This is a beautiful tension because we want to trust God for the miraculous, but you want to participate by doing what you can do. God expects you to do what you can do. While God does do the miraculous, he does not want to give you and me room for laziness. You get this? He expects the people to contribute where they can. So God stops providing the manna. And to make sure this is personal, the people are are fully devoted. He says, I, before we go in to this first battle, everybody's circumcised. I want this to be very personal. Secondly, after that's done, then I want you to remember the context. Have the Passover. Now, can you imagine, just stop for a moment, if you were from Jericho and you're a spy for Jericho and you, you crawl on your stomach outside the city and you go out to the woods and you see them there a few hundred yards away and you're just to bring the report back, and they say to them, are they out there? Oh, yeah, they're out there. What are they doing? I don't know. They stopped, and they're doing surgery. I don't know what that's about. Okay, go back, and a few days later, okay, he goes back a few days. What are they doing now? They're, they're doing a festival. They're eating a meal. 
okay, I thought they'd be getting ready to, to, to hit us, to attack us. It doesn't make sense. Well, God does that on purpose so only he can get the glory for the victory. And he expects us to contribute where we can. But he wants us to know, if you're going to make it, it's going to be my good hand, the Lord says. So Joshua will actually go out and he'll survey the scene of Jericho. He'll take a private trip out to Jericho and he'll, he knows that each city, and this is the way it was in Canaan at the time, each city typically was, um, had a, its own little city gates and that sort of thing, but it had its own king. So that region would be that own little kingdom. And each kingdom defended themselves. They were all their own, which meant for Joshua... I'm going to have not one big battle, but I'm going to have a series of battles. Each city we take, I'm going to have to take it. He knew that. I could just imagine he goes through the plains and goes through the woods, comes up on the grassy side where he sees Jericho from a distance. And he knows now. Uh, historians tell us that Jericho is probably a walled city. The walls were 40 feet high. This is big, folks. This is big even for them. This is maybe one of the most fortified cities out there. If it's 40 feet high, just think how wide the wall must be to get that high. Just think how wide it must be at the base. The gates are probably rough-hewn timbers that are fit tightly together. They're highly trained, skillful fighters. And I'm sure Josh was thinking, okay, as he's heading back, and this is, this is Dave now. It's kind of sanctified imagination. This is why Dave is not the name of this book, called Joshua. Because if it was Dave, I would have gone through the woods, looked up, seen Jericho, and then I would have gotten my map back out and thought, are we in the right place? Could I get a GPS on this? Because I don't want to attack the wrong city. Let me go for something smaller. Would you do that? Let me, get, let me do a, a little village. You know, I can overrun Bethlehem, not Jericho. No, Joshua sees it, he's heading back, and I'm sure he's thinking, they have the best fighters, skilled army, the best walls, the best equipment. I have some guys who've never fought at a battle before. They have a handful of spears, some swords, that's about it. We don't have any catapults, we don't have any movable ladders, we have no towers, we have nothing to shoot with, we have no battering ram to hit the door, but... We do have our wives and our children, and we have some goats and some sheep. That's where we are. We have all of our possessions to move at the same time. We're not very nimble. And as he heads back, I'm sure that's going through his mind saying, God, how are we going to do this? Let's pick it up. Verse 13. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us, or are you for our enemies? It's a great question. Are you for us? He's, he's outside the city. He's, you know, maybe a few hundred yards away. You for us? You, you for the enemies? You against us? And he answers, neither, verse 14. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence, and he asked him, what message does, the, does the, my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals. The place where you're standing is holy. He doesn't even say, here's the message from the Lord. He says, take off your shoes. 
This is holy ground, and that's exactly what Joshua does. I love this response. <laughs> Are you for us or against us? Neither. Are you A or B? I'm C. Okay, this isn't going so well. Is Are you A or B? I'm C. And then he says, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Some believe, and he's carrying a sword. I, for me, just personally again, are you with us against us? If he has a sword, are you with us or against us? Sir. <laughs> Something here. He's got a sword for crying out loud. He says, I'm a commander. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. Theologians call this the theophany. It's a visible sighting of God in the Old Testament. Theo, God, sighting, theophany. It, it's the idea of this God sighting of him coming in a human or angelic, it looks like human kind of a way. I believe it's even more than that. I think it's a Christophany. It's not just God showing up. I think it's Christ himself. Now, theologians all agree it is God. And the reason, if you go back to the text, look, he says, I'm the commander of the Lord, uh, uh, of the army of the Lord, and I have now come. And what does Joshua do? He falls down on his face in reverence. If he were not God, that messenger from God would have said, don't bow down to me, I'm not God. So he would have stopped the reverence piece, but he didn't, which leads me to believe it is a theophany and maybe a Christophany. I believe it is Jesus Christ himself. It's a, it's a pre-New Testament time. It's an Old Testament occurrence when Jesus shows up, which, again, by the way, validates the fact that Jesus is eternal. He's part of the Trinity. He didn't just show up at Christmas. He was actually all through the Old Testament. And when Joshua bows and he's not told to stand up, this is a good stopping point for us to realize this is probably Christ. This is the, and if you take this and go to Revelation, what you'd find is when the Lord does return, guess what he's, guess what he's riding? It's not a donkey. It's a white horse. You know, when he rode in to town to be crucified on a cross, he rides in on Palm Sunday in a donkey. When he comes again, it'll be in a stallion. And there'll be a sword. And you will, it's an iron rod rule of Christ. This is a good place to stop and realize this is the commander of the Lord God of heaven and he is carrying not a batch of flowers, not a bundle of flowers. He's carrying a sword. This is not a wimp. This is an authoritative commander who has the right to rule in our hearts and lives. So if you have impressions of who Christ might be and in your mind you see him as weak, or fragile, or timid, or soft, or anything else. Let me just tell you, even when he came as Savior, which would be the softer side of this, when he came as shepherd to the people and his teacher, even when he did that, he tipped over tables in the worship center, and nobody stopped him. That tells me something about his strength and his posture. It also, when he was arrested in the garden, by the way, it's in the garden for crying out loud. They could have gone in with two officers. What did they take? They took a whole platoon in. Um, by the way, you, you know this, but Jesus grew up in a carpenter shop. He grew up doing stuff, building the muscle, doing the things that carpenters do. So when you have this view of Jesus somehow that is just so cushy, that needs to go away. Because 
the commander of the army of the Lord is carrying a sword. Now, this angel tells Joshua, number one, the battle's not yours. This is not yours to be fought. This is the Lord's battle. If this were your battle, you'd be in trouble. But God has this. The captain of the host doesn't even, he doesn't even say to Joshua, by the way, how many spears do you have? You have some swords? We're a little short on pea shooters. Do you have pea shooters? He doesn't ask any of those questions. Do you have enough ammo? He doesn't ask any of that. Why? Because he has this. Now, the Lord did occasionally show up in the Old Testament. And uh, one of the times, if you're taking notes, Numbers chapter 22, it was a guy by the name of Balaam. His eyes were opened and he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the road. And um, the way you can tell this is there's sometimes there were, uh, there were times when an angel, is a, it's just uh, an indefinite article, and then there's times when there's a definite article. Well, this has the definite article in front. It's the angel of the Lord. I think it's Christ. In Numbers 22, Balaam's eyes are opened, and he sees the angel of the Lord standing in the road. Guess what he has in his hand? A sword. And the sword at that time was drawn. What does Balaam do? He does the smart thing. He bows down. Again, with Elisha, chapter uh, 6 of the book of 2 Kings, Elisha thought he was all alone in the battles, and he prays out to God, Oh, God, may I open my eyes so I can see what's really going on. And the Lord says, Okay, I'll do that. And he opens Elisha's eyes when he's in battle. And what does Elisha see? 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17. The Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked at it, and he saw the hills behind him. The hills are full of horses and chariots of fire all around him. Wouldn't that change your posture? You know, you're going into battle and you realize you got guys on fire behind you. Would that be cool or what? I mean, yeah, we took them on that day. Oh, yeah, whatever. There have been times throughout history when this has happened. Um, you've read of stories, and I'm not talking about crazy people doing crazy things. I'm not talking about that at all. But there have been times where I've read of stories where heaven came down for the benefit of mankind. And one of those stories I've enjoyed reading is a story by, name, by a guy by the name of John Payton. John Payton uh, was born, grew up in the 1800s, died early 1900s, just a little over 100 years ago. Uh, Payton uh, grew up in Scotland, was born and raised in Scotland, married, and uh, he and his wife decided to go to, I'm going to say it wrong, it's the New Hebrides Islands. These are small islands outside of New Zealand. So if you were to go to like Papua New Guinea, it's not far from there, Australia, New Zealand, that part of the world. But it's the 1800s. He gets on a ship, he's probably never coming back. Those islands at the time, they wanted to take the love of Jesus and take the word of God there and translate for people. And, but they knew the people there were cannibals. There were headhunters. John and his wife still felt compelled to go. Uh, and so they, they got on a ship that sailed to the islands, and then when they got there, they had to actually get in their own boat and row ashore on their own. They got to shore, and they camped at the shore, seashore the first night. And here they are in this, this island in the 1800s, known for its cannibalism, headhunters, and they prayed to God for safety, and they went to bed, set up their tent on the shore, went to bed. They would go on to uh, learn the language, love on the people, tell them the stories of Jesus, give to them a language 
a Bible in language. They begin to do translation work and churches would be started. And it would take years for all this to develop. He would also fight against uh, slavery because they would, people would come onto those islands, steal the people, the inhabitants of the islands, and take them away to other islands for forced labor. It was nothing shy of slavery. He fought against that and helped uh, them establish some rules and some laws. He was a great guy for social issues as well as the planting of a lot of churches. After a season, some time had passed, the, uh, the tribal leader met with him and they talked about how this had all come to be and how Christ had entered this tribal leader's heart and how pleased they were that, that the Paytons were living on, on uh, the New Hebrides islands. And then eventually the conversation went back to how you got here and what was it like when you first came. And, and John said, honestly, when we landed, we rowed our own little boat ashore, we set up our tent, we prayed for safety, but we thought you might actually kill us. And we didn't know. We went to bed not knowing what would happen. And, and the tribal chief stopped him and said, oh, but you don't know the whole story. Uh, we did come in the night. We did come, and some of the warriors slipped down through the woods to the edge of the beach. And we were going to attack you, kill you, and eat you. Can you imagine someone saying that to you? I'm going to attack you, kill you, and then eat you. And then we reached the sands and we started towards your tent, he said. But what we saw were flaming soldiers appearing and surrounding the tent. Each had his own sword in hand. So he says, so we retreated. <laughs> Why do I share that story with you? Because you, you never have to worry that the Lord is with you. This is the Lord's battle. It's not yours. And should you find that the Lord comes through the way you thought he should, or should he come through a different way, he is still the Lord God, and he's still out for your good. Number one, this is not your battle. It's the Lord's. Number two, God is not on my side. I am on his I have to choose to be on his. Joshua meets the guy and he says, are you for us or against us? He says, neither. I'm for the Lord. I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. This is a concept we have to embrace. God doesn't decide to join my side. That's foolishness to think that. It's foolishness for us to think... We can plan our lives and execute our, our agendas and we can live out our objectives in life and then ask God to help us. No, we have to decide in our own hearts, whatever God wants to do, that's what we want to do. We be conformed to his image, to his plan, his agenda, his objectives, his big goal. Now, we flip that equation all the time. We pick a position, no matter what it is in life, and, and then we ask God, oh God, make this your position. In fact, we'll even go out and memorize a verse or two, taken totally out of context, but we'll memorize a verse or two just to prove our point. And all along, we aren't, we aren't impressing anybody but ourselves. Instead, we have to ask ourselves, am I choosing to be on the Lord's side? In fact, will it take an angel of the Lord holding a sword to get us to change? The biblical term for change 
and the change of mind is the word repent. And my, my word to you is this. If it, if it isn't in your nature to repent regularly, to rethink your position, to ask God to open your eyes to what's really happening, if that doesn't happen, you may be, in fact, saying, oh, God, make my position your position. You may be forcing the hand of God, and it's not going to work. But the follower of Jesus Christ who really trusts the Lord will do just the opposite. He'll say, I have no opinion but that of the kings. And I submit gladly to it. And as I learn it, I submit to it. As I learn it, I submit to it. God is not on my side. Joshua learns, and so do we, church. We have to choose to be on his. And number three, this is not ordinary. This is not just an ordinary day, an ordinary battle, an ordinary work. This is not ordinary. This is holy. See, we, send, we tend to see the church as holy ground or the place where we have our Bible reading as holy ground. No. Your office, where you do battle, that's holy ground. Your law firm, where you practice, or in a court, where you practice, that's holy ground. You're a cop and you're on the street, that is holy, holy terror ground. And you pray that the Lord would be with you and that he will see you through those battles. The assembly line in the factory, the route that you take to work, that is holy ground. It's where the battle is. Don't see it as anything different. So take off your shoes. In other words, make yourself sensitive to it. Never forget the words of Jack Hayford. He said, do I take off my shoes? And I found this to be true. Don't you really watch where you walk when your shoes are off? You know, I've got really clunking shoes with like steel toed. I mean, I can go anywhere with these things. Well, I'm insensitive to what the ground is. When my shoes are off, now I'm really picking and choosing where I'm walking. And that's what God wants. He wants us to be so sensitive to what is happening. Take your shoes off. This is holy ground. The conflict in family relationships, that is holy ground. Your pride stands in the way of making the progress you want to make because this is holy ground. The school that you go to where minds are in motion God is at work is there, at there as well. That is holy ground. So if you see your life as the battlefield and you know God's got the battle, I have to choose to be on his side, now all this is holy. It's all yours, Lord. I'll see it that way, and that's what we need. But this is going to have to start first by personally saying, Lord, do the surgery on me. Open my heart. The New Testament calls it circumcision of the heart. It's where I get as personal with God as I can be. And I remember the faithfulness of God. It's the Passover. We're going to come to the Lord's table in a little bit. We're going to remember that we were slaves to sin with no hope and no future. And a lamb shed his blood so we could be free. We remember where we came from. So there's no pride to us. But we remember too, we want to be part of the process that God's involved in. He'll do the miraculous things, but we'll contribute where we can. And as we do that, we'll see this is holy ground. This is not for me to choose sides. It's for me to decide to follow the Lord and to know that the Lord has the battle. Would you bow with me in prayer? This is serious time here for us to realize we're going to go into battle this week and you can fight it on your own strength. And you might have moments of success. But before the Lord, would you just ask the Lord, Lord, I, 
I, I want to succeed not because I'm so good, I'm so clever, I'm so skilled. No, I want to succeed to your glory because that's what will last. And you have humbled me. And if that needs to happen again, ask the Lord to do that. Some of us just need that right there. For many of us, it's just to remember where we came from. We've been in the Christian culture long enough that we think we're all that, when really we were in the pit, somewhere enslaved with no hope and no future. Until an angel of the Lord flew over, we believed. For some, you just need to open your heart to Christ. There is um, someone in the room, just this is your day to realize, you know what? The Lord's going to win this thing. I need to get on the right side. So I open my life to trust Christ as Savior and Lord of my life. I want to follow him in faith. I know I've blown it with sin, but I, I know Christ can save me. That's your prayer. All of us, though, would have to admit, Lord, our prayer is that we really, really need you.